How do you respond when you hear terrible news? I suppose we could ask any South Africans who we have in the room today <laughs> about that. Um, but I'm not going to labour that point because I don't know what the next few weeks the Rugby World Cup are going to hold. What we do know about is the next few weeks of our preaching here at King's on a Sunday morning. And uh, this is the second in our new preaching series called Grand Designs. And we are looking at how God uh, prepares us to be used by him to fulfill his purposes. And we're doing this by looking at the life of Nehemiah uh, in the Old Testament. And whether you've just arrived in Edinburgh and everything is new, and you could probably honestly say right now I literally don't know where I am, or you've been here for years, maybe everything just feels a little bit same old, same old. God has made promises about his purposes, and they involve you. And he wants you to get hold of them, to understand them, and to live according to them. And I want to help you to do that today as we look at how deeply rooted Nehemiah was in the promises of God, how that affected uh, his response uh, to terrible news, and uh, how that enabled him to be used by God. And then we're going to see how we uh, can do the same. Just to give you a bit of background, if you're not familiar with the story, um, it comes at a time in which God's people are in exile. Uh, they had been thrown out of the land that God had given them because of their persistent rebellion against him. Foreign powers had invaded their land, uh, destroyed their capital city, Jerusalem, and the temple, which was the presence where God dwelt at that time, destroyed all that meant most to them, and then had taken thousands of people from there into exile, taking them hundreds of miles out and put them in this new land to live, really kind of tearing down uh, the nation. And God actually said that um, this was part of his plan for them because of their rebellion against him. And he said, when this happens, when something this shocking happens, you will realize how rebellious you've been against me. Uh, you will repent and you will uh, come back and I will allow you to do that. And that process had slowly begun about 90 years before what we're going to read today. As for Nehemiah himself, he had grown up um, as a member of the people of God in exile. And he had received a great education there. He had risen to the important position of royal cupbearer. You think, well, that doesn't sound like much. No, it means he's the most senior civil servant in the Persian Empire. So that's a pretty high grade. And he had been living with the assumption uh, that because some of God's people had been allowed to return those decades before, things must be going really well in Jerusalem. Surely they're back by now, and they are, they've rebuilt the temple, they've rebuilt the city, and everything's glorious once again. And that's what he's assuming is happening, because obviously, you know, there's no internet, there's no radio, he, doesn't, you know, he hasn't heard from Jerusalem for a while. At the start of the book that's named after him, he discovers that this is not the case at all. The city is still in ruins, and he is devastated by this. And we're going to look at his response today and see actually how it led to the reconstruction of Jerusalem. This is how Nehemiah responded to bad news. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O oh Lord, 
God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give, him success to your, and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. That's how Nehemiah responds to bad news. There are many ways that we can do this, aren't they? We either see news in the television or online uh, or uh, just in our own lives, things go wrong or things don't go as we'd hoped. I mean, we can respond emotionally, uh, we get upset, uh, we get angry, or we think, I just actually don't have time or emotional space to cope with that. I'm gonna either change the channel or just kind of bury it down and pretend it's not happening. It's a personal issue. We might speak with other people, try to get some resolution if it's a more kind of you know, national, international level, we live at a time where it's very easy uh, for us to send money uh, that might help with that, uh, to lobby the government through petition and protests. Uh, there are lots of things like that we can do. But Nehemiah didn't do those. Although he was in an emotional state, clearly he felt a burden of responsibility and his response to this huge, terrible news is to pray. Sometimes, particularly when bad things are going on, it's difficult not to pray in a way that's basically worrying out loud. And there's just, oh, the situation is overwhelming, it's terrible. The more you talk to God about it, the more terrible it gets because you're just saying, there's this, that's really bad, and this, that's awful, and I have no idea how this could be fixed. This is terrible, oh my goodness. And you know, your prayers just serve to depress you and don't do anything else. That's not how Nehemiah prayed. Nehemiah prays a prayer packed full of God's promises. He is pleading with God. We can even picture him as wrestling with God, saying, Lord, come on, won't you do this? God loves this kind of prayer. If you want to know the kind of prayer God loves and God answers, this is a brilliant example of it. And so I want us to look at today what the promises are, where he got them from, and what they mean for us and then we'll look at how we get hold and keep them uh, for ourselves today. So, Nehemiah started his prayer by focusing on God. This is a great idea. Okay, this is excellent. This is what you should do. Because when you start with yourself, or when you start with your problems, as I've said, it just, it, it's, a, it's a low starting point, and it's only going to get worse because you're feeling awful because of what's going on, and now you're thinking about it, and the more you're thinking about it, the worse and worse it seems, the worse and worse it gets. 
But if you focus on God and his greatness and his ability and his uh, wonder, your perspective starts to change. And that's what Nehemiah does. So Nehemiah is going to speak to his boss, who's the most powerful person on earth, the king of Persia. He's going to speak to him about changing his policy on Jerusalem. The reason Jerusalem is in, is in ruins is because the king of Persia likes it that way. And Nehemiah is basically going to risk his life by saying to the king, I'd like you to change that policy. That's a big call. How does Nehemiah think about this? Last line of the prayer, God, give me favor with that man. That man? I mean, he's, yeah, he, he's not the, that man. He's the most powerful man on earth. But he's not when you've spent time looking at God. When your perspective has been changed because you've seen the one who is truly great. Uh, George Mueller um, was a guy who uh, founded and funded orphanages um, entirely by unsolicited donations. He looked after thousands and thousands of children. And these things were built and they were sustained uh, entirely by money that was given that George Mueller never asked for. The only person he ever asked money for from was God. And he would pray, obviously, a lot. And he realized that if he just started by saying, oh Lord, there's no money, and there are thousands of orphans, and I've no idea how you're going to provide, he thought, that's not, that's not going to help my prayer life. That's not going to get me praying in faith. But what he said instead, he learned this, he said, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. That is how George Mueller, with massive responsibilities and huge prayers to pray, started praying. I had to look at God. I had to focus all my attention on God. Nehemiah got this, and so he starts with God. And he talks about the identity and the character of God, and within that are therefore loads of promises. Because what God says about himself is what he promises to do. And so he prays, O oh Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now there are many gods in Persia. Different gods had different names. And so Nehemiah says, I'm not speaking to any of those. I am speaking to Yahweh, the God of Israel. When you see Lord in capital letters in your Bible, that's a translation of the name Yahweh, the personal name that God had given, uh, revealed of himself to Moses at the burning bush, at the start of the story of how God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. That's when God announces that that's his name. And that's the name that Nehemiah uses. Now, you may be familiar with that story. Maybe you've seen the Prince of Egypt or you've read the book of Exodus. Well, uh, you can guess which one of those that Nehemiah had done, but he had definitely done it. He knows the story, and it's clearly in his mind as he prays. story goes that Yahweh uh, declares that he is going to set his people free from slavery in Egypt. He says to Pharaoh, let my people go through Moses. Pharaoh says, no way, I'm more powerful than anyone else. I'll do what I like. Yahweh says, well, we'll see about that. 
Ten plagues of going back and forth of God saying, let my people go, I'm going to do something terrible. Pharaoh says, you can't do that. God says, yes, I can. On and on it goes. And at the end result, there's one clear winner. Yahweh is much mightier than Pharaoh. He then parts the Red Sea uh, so that these hundreds of thousands of Israelites can escape. And then he destroys Pharaoh's army in the aftermath of that. That's the story that's in Nehemiah's mind when he calls God Yahweh. No wonder he follows that up by saying, you are great and awesome. Because those are great and awesome things to do. Immediately, he is stirring faith. Immediately, he's thinking to himself, this is the character of the one to whom I am praying right now. There's a terrible situation over there, but the one I am praying to, he is mighty. He could do another mighty thing. It's faith stirring. Back to the story, once, uh, the Exodus story. Once they were out of Egypt, Yahweh made a covenant with Israel. A covenant is like a deal. It's made between a stronger party and a weaker party in which the stronger party says, right, I am involving you now. I am committed uh, to you. There are terms and conditions to it, and you can read about those in the Old Testament. Simply, God says, I will be your God. I will love you. I will protect you. I will provide for you. I will use you to demonstrate my glory to the whole world. In order for that to happen, here is how you must live. Guys, it's so important. If you don't live this way, I'm going to have to clear you out that the, people might, that the world might realize that I am holy and good. And so he establishes this covenant, this deal, this commitment to Israel. And Nehemiah knows this. We know that he knows this because the language he is using is consciously echoing what God says about himself in Exodus. So in Exodus 34, verse 6, uh, Yahweh reveals himself to Moses. Moses usually just kind of hears something, but one time he, kind of, he has a revelation of God, and this is what God says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So when Nehemiah prays, Lord, you are the God of steadfast love. He's not just hoping that's the case. He knows that's the case because that is what God has said about himself and demonstrated about himself. And so he isn't just speaking to someone who's incredibly strong, which would be good enough. And you think, well, I'm going to pray to a mighty person and maybe they'll help me out. No, Nehemiah's got more than that. So I'm not just praying to the strongest being in all creation. I am praying to the one who loves us and has committed himself to us. Bill Hybels puts it simply, God is willing and able to answer our prayers. He's willing and able to answer our prayers. And Nehemiah is reminding himself of this and engaging with God through it. He's saying to God, this is who you are. This is what you're like. Implication. And then he just says it. Will you act according to your character once again and change this awful situation? That's where he starts. But Exodus isn't the only book that Nehemiah has been reading. Here's the later part of his prayer. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. That's what Nehemiah says. Let me tell you what Moses says to the people in Deuteronomy, which uh, continues the story that's told in Exodus, Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 to 4. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I've set before you, 
and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. Nehemiah is desperate for Jerusalem to be rebuilt. He is desperate for God to gather his people once again. But what basis does he have for asking for that? God has promised it. Nehemiah can say, however far you have scattered people, you can bring them back. Because you have said, you would, I'm not making, he's saying, I'm not making this up, God. I am just saying, you said this to us. And I'm now saying, won't you do it? That's how he is able to pray with such faith and such confidence because he's resting his whole prayer, his whole ambition on the promises that God has already stated to him. Saying, Yahweh, you showed us that you're mighty and you're loving uh, when you rescued us from Egypt. I read about that. I saw it. It's, it's, it's in the book. And then you made a covenant with us that you would love us and you would have us as your people. I read that. It was in the book. We broke the terms of the arrangement so grievously that you scattered us all over the land just as you promised. I read that too. But you also promised that when we repented, you would gather us back again. I read that. It's in there. Yahweh, we are repenting. So please bring us back just as you promised, just as you wrote it down. That's how he is praying. And without wishing to spoil the rest of the story for you, that's what God does. And he uses Nehemiah to do it. Because Nehemiah gets involved, God involves him. Because Nehemiah believes the promises and prays, he doesn't just witness God do it anyway. He gets to play a part in God's purposes. This becomes the turning point as it seems, from an earthly perspective. The moment when Nehemiah prayed a prayer that trusted in the promises of God. If you want to build your life on a rock, if you need light when things are dark and confusing, if you want your life to count in the final assessment, you need to base it on the promises that God has made in this book that describe his purposes for the whole earth And for all time, they are here for you. What are they? We're going to look at them a bit because they're amazing. The promises that we have today are a huge upgrade on the promises that God gave Nehemiah. Suddenly felt like Tim Cook from Apple just in that moment. You know, Last year, we made you the best ever phone. And I'm telling you that this year, we've made such a better phone. (laughs) I'm telling you, these are phenomenally upgraded promises that we now have. The Exodus, that mighty event, God's covenant with Israel, that incredible deal, great as they were, are signposts to the ultimate expression of God's strength and love and commitment to his creation. They're phenomenal events, but they're just signposts along the way to the event. 
Nehemiah called God Yahweh, rightly so. And we can call him that and many other names, but the name by which we ultimately know him and that he has given to us by which we can define him is Jesus. Jesus, if you want to know what God is like, maybe you're not a Christian here today, you think, what exactly is this like? Jesus is exactly what God is like. And that's the name that we call on him, that we call him by. And the story of Jesus shows how the story of Exodus was just a signpost. Because whereas in Exodus, God brought people out of slavery um, in Egypt and into a new land, so Jesus has brought everyone who trusts in him out of slavery to sin and death and into an eternal life full of holiness and joy forever. Because Jesus, when he lived amongst us on earth, never sinned. He always resisted temptation. He always did the right thing. Sin had no claim on him. And so he broke its power. Sin could never say, ah, but you did that. Ah, but I know about this. He couldn't say that about Jesus. He defeated it. And then when he gave his life for us, died on the cross, he gave up his life and then he took it up again because the indestructible power of divine life that was in him could not be held by the grave. Because he defeated sin and all its claims, death had no claim, no hold on him either. And so he rose from the dead and he shares these victories with us. He won them for us. John 12, 46. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet will he live. Jesus is offering you this incredible display of power. I mean, we, know, we feel pretty good if we like, manage to resist sin for about five minutes. We think, man, it's more for Jesus did it for a lifetime. And we feel okay. I mean, I know just a number of people right now just feeling a bit under the weather. And you feel weak, don't you? And you think gradually, slowly you get better. Jesus died and then got better. He's that mighty. But Nehemiah doesn't just pray to a mighty God, does he? No, he prays to a loving God. Is that still the case? You better believe it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. The motivation behind everything that Jesus did, all that phenomenal display of strength, was the eternal divine love. And whereas Nehemiah looked forward to the rebuilding of Jerusalem, that one little city, so now Jesus is building his church all over the world and living in it by his Holy Spirit. Matthew 16, verse 18, he says, I will build my church. You want to know what Jesus wants to do? I will build my church, he says. And when church, he means a gathering of people. It doesn't just mean there'll be Christians all over the place and they'll do some stuff. He's like, no, I will build gatherings of my people all over the world. Paul, uh, speaking to the Corinthians, to the church, says, you, it's a plural you, you lot are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you. That is what is happening. Now, there was a time when the temple was that bit in Jerusalem and God dwelled in there. Now God dwells in us together 
by his spirit. And then in Ephesians 5, he says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's what Jesus is doing. That is what his plan is. That is what he is going to achieve. And it's going to last forever. They rebuilt Jerusalem. They did it. It got destroyed again. They rebuilt the temple. It got destroyed again. Jesus comes and establishes eternal life and eternal people. The purposes of God have begun. They continue now. They will last forever. And they are the completion of of all God's plans. They are the fulfillment of all his promises. Sin and death, those great powers, when they came into the world in the Garden of Eden, do you know know what God did? The first thing he did was make a promise. And he said to the snake, one will come from Eve who you fooled. One will come who will crush your head. When he spoke to Abraham, he said, Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless all the nations. He spoke to David. He said, I'm going to give you an eternal kingdom. You are going to have a reign through your line that is going to be over all the earth and for all time. And through the prophet Isaiah, he said, I'm going to bring freedom to the captives. I'm going to bring forgiveness for sins. And this is never, ever going to end. And Jesus did it all. For no matter how many promises God has made, 2 Corinthians says, they are yes in Christ. He is the great promise fulfiller. Nehemiah knew God's great promises. And he was able to use those in his prayer life that they might shape how he lived. And by doing so, he brought himself into the will of God. I want you to do the same. These are the great things that God is about. You don't want to waste your life on anything less than them. If we have even greater promises than Nehemiah did, and we want to be involved in fulfilling them, surely we should get hold of them, keep them at the forefront of our minds, and learn to pray and believe them. So we're going to close up by looking at how we do this. How do we get the promises? First thing, you need to get them in your head. You need to get them in there. I think I've probably already made this point fairly clearly. You need to read and hear the words of this book. If you want to know what God has said, you want to know what God has promised, it is in here. It's here, I promise you, because he's promised that's the case. And when he said, I can rise from the dead if you kill me, I think you can trust anything else that he says. He says they're in here. Come to a church where the word of God is read every week, where the promises of God are declared throughout all the meetings that they have. If you're looking for a church and a new student, you think, I'm not quite sure I'm going to end up. We'd love you to be here wherever you go. Make sure they talk about this all the time and believe it. Otherwise, you will be led down paths that will lead to you wasting your life. I would hate for you to do that. You need to read this for yourself. Just reading it through, looking in it. God, what have you said? What have you promised? What are you promising me today? What are you reminding me about, about your eternal purposes today? You just like, where do I start? You could, I mean, as I said, look at Jesus because that's what God's like. Read Matthew 6, the prayer Jesus taught us to pray. It's full of promises. 
When it says, give us this day our daily bread, God never tells us to ask for something he doesn't promise to give. It's full of promises for you. The more you get these promises in your head, the more God will use them to grab your attention and to push them more and more into your consciousness and more and more how, how you think. It's been, a, um, it's been quite a crazy week uh, uh, for me and for, for, for Deb and I. Um, so we, when was it? This isn't a moan, I'm just letting you know. <laughs> so last Friday, we drove seven hours. Saturday, we drove six hours. Got back to Edinburgh at the end of that six hours. An hour later, we had a student small group leaders meeting. Straight after that, we had a church small group leaders meeting. The next morning was Sunday, led the meeting. Uh, we then had 74 around for lunch. We had a couple of hours break in the afternoon, then I went to the evening meeting, met a bunch more new students, then we went to the pub and met, met all the rest of those. Monday, I um, prepared my talk and tidied up the house. I was talking on Tuesday at our student refresh event that we had this week on Tuesday and Wednesday, where loads of our students gathered together, had worship, uh, great teaching, and then uh, went out and just blessed the city, praying for people, helping the council out with stuff, going into a care home. It was amazing. Rachel planned and made most of that happen, but I had to get my talk ready uh, to do that. Did that on Tuesday, along with all the usual office stuff. Wednesday, it's our first elders meeting since Matthew's come back from his sabbatical, and we've got Dave Holden visiting us in two weeks' time. So we want to hear how Matthew's doing and everything that's going on with that, and then we need to get ready for this big meeting with Dave, where we're going to look at all the things of the future. So that's all of Wednesday morning. Um, I took a pause Wednesday lunchtime, and then Wednesday afternoon start thinking about planning for Academy, because our new leadership training course, Academy, started this Friday. And uh, again, Janet was making a load of that happen. I'm hosting it, and so I had to get ready for that, and had to prepare this preach. And about half the time that I usually have to prepare a preach, which I don't like at all. I like a lot of time to do this, because I want to do it well for you. Um, so that was then Wednesday into Thursday. Thursday, tried to write as much of this preach as I could. Friday, Academy starts. Amazing. 40 people in this room wanting to learn and grow in the grace of God that they might become leaders and plant churches all over the place. Brilliant event. That was on uh, Friday, Friday evening, and then Saturday, that's yesterday. Uh, we did that during the morning and the afternoon. Then we came home. Deb cooked this amazing meal that hundreds of students are going to have uh, today. I finished writing this preach. We went out to uh, sister-in-law's fundraising event in the evening, went to bed, woke up, got ready for today. <laughs> If I am not quite at my sharpest when I speak to you later, I'm sorry, but, but that is why. If you're a visual learner and you were hoping that there'd be a PowerPoint that would have a lot going on uh, to help you uh, today, I'm sorry, but that is why. I knew this was what the week was going to be at the start of the week, and you just look at the week and think, I've got two things to hope in. One is, I'm going to take the next Monday off. <laughs> but more than that, God has promised that his grace is sufficient. Years ago, I had a week that was far nowhere near as busy as this, but I thought it was really busy. And there was a song uh, that, go, that goes, um, uh, that just sings, Your grace is enough, your grace is enough. And I thought, oh, is that in the Bible? And I found that it was. It's 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, God says. And so but as this week happened, I just kept saying to myself, God, your grace is sufficient. You've promised that's the case. You've promised that's the case. And you, I'm not complaining about any of those things because they're amazing. I'm so fortunate to do them. If you might be thinking, man, I'd love to swap weeks with you. I'm telling you, the promise is big enough for the both of us. Whatever you're doing, whatever you want to do, God says, my grace is sufficient for you. It's in here. I don't just hope God will get me through. I don't just panic and then look back afterwards and say, oh, it worked out okay, didn't it, by and large? I mean, you said some, and, you know, I, don't, I believe beforehand because God has promised it. If it's in there then, and it's in our head, how do we keep it there? How do we keep these things in our heads? Well, I mean, just you know, put them wherever you can so that you can see them. 
Most of us have screens that we look at all day. You can write a promise of God on that screen. It's there. And you're just looking at it every time. That's still true. You look at it again. Oh, that's still true. That's amazing. You can put it you know, in front of the mirror if that's the thing you look at a lot. You can put it in front of the fridge if that's the thing you look at a lot. You know, wherever it is. It's the only reason I can think of of getting a tattoo is that you can put a promise of God like on your arm and there it is. And every time you look at it, it's still there and it's still true. I have a list in my study uh, where I go to pray in the morning of promises from God's word that I apply to different search, uh, circumstances. Promises for myself, promises for Deb, promises for the church, promises for Edinburgh, promises for the eldership team, uh, promises for the students, promises for my family. All these kind of things, they are there because otherwise I'll forget them. I will, in that morning, have that moment and you know what this is like when you've tried to pray. You think, God, I don't know what you think about anything. Well, write it down. Because he did... And if you're not going to be able to remember to find exactly where it is, you think, no, that's a promise for my life. Write it down. And then say, God, you've said it. Lord, you've said it. And that's the next step. Take it from from your head to your prayers. This was Nehemiah's pattern. God, you've said this. You've said this. I'm not making this up. You said you would do this. Prayer doesn't start with us. It can feel like a blank page sometimes, can't it? You go in and you get everything quiet. And you assume, therefore, that everything is quiet. But actually, God has spoken and is speaking to you that you might respond. God's saying, here's a promise for you. Here's what I've said I'm going to do with my church. Here's what I've said I'm going to do with you in eternity. Will you believe it? Will you reply to me now and say, yes, God, I believe that. May it be so. Describe what you think it will look like to him. Say, Lord, if you were to answer this prayer, if you were to fulfill this promise... So there's a, a promise that he makes in, uh, in Jonah about the city of Nineveh. There's no reason why God would bless Nineveh except that he's merciful. He says, well, I not have mercy on this great city. All full of all these people that don't know their right hand from their left. I feel able to take that for Edinburgh. It's full of people who think they know their right and their left and they don't because they don't know God. Won't you have mercy? And so I say, God, again and again, I say, won't you have mercy on this city? Lord, this is what it would look like if you had mercy. Lord, those strip clubs around the pubic triangle, they'd be gone and they'd be nowhere else. Lord, the students who come, would be, uh, they would just learn and love you and they go all over the world and all over this nation and plant churches and do good and bring justice. Lord, that's what it would look like. Lord, they wouldn't be poor on the streets. That's what it would look like. God, won't you have mercy on this city? As you pray, consider what your part of that is, what it's going to look like for you. Or just simply say it. Won't you have mercy? Oh, Lord, won't you have mercy? You're engaging with the promise at that point. And then once they're in your head and in your prayers, get them in your actions. Get them in the rest of your day. You only prove that promise is true when you test it out. That's when you see that it is. Will God enable you to do everything else you need to do in the day if you spend more time praying? There's only one way to find out. Will he provide for your needs when you give away chunks of your income? There's only one way to find out. Will he vindicate you when you speak for him? Will he honour you when you honour him? There's only one way to find out. This is part of our arguing, our wrestling even, with God. Because many of the heroes of faith that I've read about, just through history and in the Bible as well, men and women, God is used to do incredible things, had long struggles to see the breakthrough. Happens pretty quick in Nehemiah. I mean, it's actually four months later, but we don't feel that. We just think, Nehemiah got upset, prayed, then it happened. It wasn't quite like that, and it's almost never like that. People have seen maybe thousands of people were healed or saved or, or rescued. They went years without seeing anything happen. 
But they prayed and they acted in faith and then nothing happened. And so what did they do? They went back and prayed again. And then they acted again. And then it didn't happen again. So what did they do? Back again. Third time's the charm. I mean, I don't believe in that, but let's pray again. And they prayed again and they acted again. And eventually, sometimes after years, decades, longer than some of us have been alive, it took them that long of praying and acting and believing and going again and again and again. No matter what happened, they wouldn't give up until God gave them breakthrough. They believed Hebrews 10.23, which says, He who promises is faithful. And even though they looked at a world that was completely upside down compared to what they read in here, they said, I believe this. Let God be true and every man a liar. I believe this. And until, Lord, you make the world around me like it is in here, I'm going to keep bothering you. I'm going to keep praying to you. I'm going to keep acting in this way until you do. God loves that. And this is where we are finishing. God loves it because it means he gets the glory. And that's exactly how it should be. Nehemiah's a great guy, highly educated, very able. You see through the rest of the book, you are smart um, and you know, all this kind of stuff. But he knows the task before him is too great. He cannot do it. He must rely on God. And God fulfills the promises that God makes. As I said, we'll be telling you the story over the rest of the term. Feel free to read on ahead, see it for yourself. God does incredible things. God does incredible things. Because whilst we have a part to play, we get hold of the promises, we pray them to God, we act according to them. Just like Nehemiah did, God is the hero of this story. God is the hero. We love it when people make a promise, don't we? Or we do if they fulfill it. We love it when people fulfill a promise. Movies know this. They often have promises because there's such an emotional tug. You know, in kids' movies, what's the one thing that almost, it seems to me, happens in every kids' movie ever? An adult breaks a promise. Because that's the worst thing that could ever happen. And, it ju- and it's just what happens to all of them because you know, the adults around them are only human. But it happens. But when you have more adult, uh, you, know, you, you then watch kind of like older action films or things like that, you have promises being fulfilled. And that is wonderful. So when Russell Crowe in Gladiator says early on, I will have my vengeance, you love it that he does later on. And then when you watch it a second or third time, if that's what you do, (laughs) he says it and you say, go on, you're going to do it. I know you're going to do it later. When Daniel Day-Lewis in The Last of the Mohicans, he's going to leave his girl and the music's playing. He says, I will find you. No matter how long it takes, no matter how far, I will find you. And in your heart you say, yes, Someone make me a promise like that. Someone do that. Gandalf in the two towers, last one. <laughs> last one. The moment of darkest despair in the, uh, in the failed defense of Helm's Deep. The enemy are just rampaging all over this uh, castle. They're going to kill everyone. It's going to be awful. And just at the last minute, it's always at the last minute. Gandalf arrives, the light, the door, it dawns. But the thing is, it would have been great if they were just like, oh, Gandalf, you've come to help. That's brilliant. Thank you so much. You're very strong, excellent, we've won. That would be great. It would still feel good, but it's better than that. Because five days before, Gandalf said, I'm off, I will come back. And he comes back. And the music plays, and Aragorn remembers it. He said, on the dawn of the fifth day, look to the east. And there he is, and he's brought an army, and he's brought a light that blinds his enemies, and he sweeps down, and he destroys them all, 
just like he said he would. And our hearts sing when that happens because we were creatures made to trust in a promise keeper. We are people in a story that is meant to end just as the one who writ it, wrote it promised it would. That's what we were made to be. If your heart sings with this, even if you're not a Christian today, you think, I just wish this was true. I'm telling you it is. The reason your heart longs for this is because you're not an accident. You are part of a story. You're meant to have purpose that ends with the glory of God. He wants to bring you into that story. Jesus Christ, who died and rose again and said, I told you so. I told you I would. When I make a promise, I fulfill it. John in Revelation says, his name is faithful and true. It really is. As we search and listen out for the promises of God, as we tell them to ourselves in memorable ways, however we can, get them in your head, get them in front of your eyes, as we pray them, wrestling, believing, acting upon them, we will see how faithful he is, how great he is, and our lives will be lived in accordance with his will. And when we get to the eternity he promised us, he'll say, well done. I want that to be how your story ends. If you want it to be too, why don't you stand and let's commit ourselves to God. I want to invite you to do two things. One, whether you're not a Christian or a Christian, you're just realizing you have been out of line with this story. You have rebelled against God. You have been going your own way. Maybe it's for a week. Maybe it's for your whole life. Here's a promise. Amazing promise in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. He's faithful. If we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us from all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the promise of God for you today. If you know you need that right now, say to God, I am so sorry for how I've been living my life. I turn to you, whether it's the first time or again, after again and again and again. I believe that promise of forgiveness for the repentant. Please forgive me. Please bring me into line with your will and purpose. If that's you, pray that now. And the other scenario, the other response I want to encourage you, if you're, you're just looking ahead and life feels a little bit kind of like the week I've described or you know, much worse or whatever it looks like for you, and you're just saying, God, this season, I don't, I mean, I just don't know what's supposed to happen. This just seems a mess or unclear. I don't know. I want to encourage you now. Ask God with confidence to help you in this season that you might live for his purposes. Just say, Lord, I need your help. I need your promises. Thank you for giving me them this morning. Let them be sealed in my life. Help me to do this. Help me, whatever I'm facing, this week, this term, this year, to live according to your will.